You're listening to audio from Embassy Church. We exist to advance the message and ministry of Jesus in the city of Bloomington, on the campus of IU, and to the ends of the earth. Hey, my name's Derek. Uh, If we haven't met, I'm the college pastor here. We do a thing called Salt Company every Thursday night at a place called The Warehouse for your college student. Come join us. Uh, I don't care what you got going on. Just skip it. It's more important, and we'd love to have you. Uh, I had no idea I was talking about marriage until 60 seconds ago. I thought I was talking about marriage from Ephesians 5. If you've been with us, we've been looking at this idea of union, right? Paul uses in Christ language so much in the book of Ephesians, especially in chapters 1 through 3, but that union with Christ then influences how we, how we work out our lives, how we live inside of the gospel. And so chapters 4, 5, and 6, we've been digging into this idea of how does my union with Jesus now that's been afforded to me because of my faith and what he's done on the cross affect my life? And certainly we know the Christian life, it moves from inward to outward, right? So much of the world is about external things and casting the right vision on the outside of, of what life is actually like. But the gospel soaks into our, our heart. It changes who we are on the inside, and that works itself out. And so in this next section of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's going to look at some of the first things the gospel should start to affect, if you will, if it's gotten into your heart. Our closest relationships, right? Marriage being predominant, children and, and family, and then um, at the time, slaves and masters. Um, all this, this household, right? Like, how should the gospel affect my household? Um, and so excited to look at, at marriage with you this morning. Uh, some of you should know about me. I like to I like to win. Like I'm an achiever. I really like winning. I like the fact that we dominated Ohio State last night. Um, and so I, part of it's just because basketball season. Like I just the question we're gonna look at today is like how do, how do we win in marriage in MC Church? Like what does it look like to be winning at something that is so stinking important as this biblical idea of marriage? Right, because you look around at the world, a lot of marriages are are losing, right? And you could argue that that winning a marriage is just man letting letting death be the thing that does us part, right? But I actually think there's more than that. Even to like, what does it mean to thrive inside a marriage? And I want to argue this morning that marriage is this this gift, this tool, even that God gives us to discover more of the depths of the gospel. Like, if I'm winning at marriage, it means I am understanding via my wife's partnership what Jesus actually did in, in his work. And there's something beautiful that helps me understand the gospel inside of my marriage. But then not only do I discover more depths of the gospel, actually my marriage itself displays the gospel to the rest of the world, right? It displays the gospel to the next generation that's trying to figure out and enter into something like marriage. And it displays the gospel to losing marriages or just people outside the church. Like what is so different about those people? And you can look at their closest relationships to, to see some hints to what is actually different on the inside and that union with Christ that's shaping everything, Right. Christian unity does not end inside the home, but it certainly starts close to there, right? I say close there because it really starts for every single one of us with a relationship with Jesus and us being united to him through his death and resurrection. But it's it's not going to skip over our marriage, if you will, to get beyond us um, to doing anything worth value in in Bloomington, right? Gospel speaks so acutely to our closest relationships. This is one of the most famous sections in the Bible, I mean, I, I don't think it's incredibly um, uh, ambitious, I, I'll say, for me to assume that this is the most frequent text preached at 
you know, weddings. Have you ever been to a wedding and you've heard Ephesians 5? Great. So no, no passage in the Bible has ever been followed by a makeout session like this one. And I hope, maybe that's part of your application if you're married in here from looking at Ephesians 5. But uh, before we dig, dive in, I just want to give some, some ground rules, okay? Um, if we're talking about winning in marriage, uh, you got to think about winning in terms of the, the Bible's uh, idea of, of roles. Like a marriage has roles. Just like a basketball team has roles. I don't want to see Trace Jackson Davis pull up and shoot a three. He's not as good. Jalen Hood Shafino should shoot threes and make the assists. I would rather see that. It works better. The team gels that way. That's not even a great analogy because a marriage only has two people, not five, so it takes two to tango, right? You've heard that saying? Tango is way more accurate. And marriage is way more like a dance than it is, you know, a scoreboard, right? You may not know anything about the tango. You may not know anything about me. I love dancing with the stars. Sydney and I, um, we miss a lot of IU basketball games. We don't miss... Monday nights in the fall when Dancing with the Stars is on ABC, now Disney+. Plus. It's just, as the fearless leader of our household, that's just one of the things we don't miss, okay? Tango is characterized by this, this close hold, a low center of gravity, okay? It, uh, there's, there's this, this uh, emphasis on contra-body movement. You don't even know what that is. The movement is like stealthy, almost cat-like. It has an unmistakable... Uh, staccato feel and a major dramatic attitude, okay? You may be like, wow, you've picked all that up in two seasons of watching Dance with the Stars. Like, no, I had to Google tango, and that's what movewithmedance.com said. But here's what you know. The tango's, it's, it's like this interdependent movement, right? There's, there is roles even in, in this, this dance of the tango, and if people aren't doing what they're supposed to do, it will look super funny, right? I mean, I don't know very many of the roles inside of the tango, uh, that each partner is supposed to play, but I mean, just picture the arm placement, right? You ever went for a hug and it's like, ah, I didn't go over the top. Like if both people are putting their arm at shoulder height in the tango, I promise you may not be able to even like pinpoint like what looks so funny about that besides their arms are just right on top of each other. But that, that's like when you don't tango properly and each partner doesn't do their role, it, it, it's off. Marriage is, is similar. It matters what we do, and, and if, if marriage is a picture of the gospel, then the people outside our walls should be able to look at embassy churches' marriages, even more so than our Sunday gatherings, to tell what sort of people we are. Tell what, what sort of things we believe about Christ. D.L. Moody said, said this. He said, if I wanted to find out whether a man was a Christian, I wouldn't ask his pastor. I would go and ask his wife. If a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. That's true for wives as well, right? If people want to know what sort of church embassy is, a peek at our marriages would be a great hint. We have different but similar commands. We're going to dive in in a second, but I, I want you to see actually what's, what's so similar about the rules. And I kind of want to anchor them in, in verse 21 for us before we even get anywhere. Verse 21 is kind of this um, transition in chapter 5 to these three relationships that follow. And verse 20 says, we want to give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Reverence for Christ is the anchor that drives the Christian who's been united for, to Christ. This reverence for a third party, if you will, in, in the marriage is the only thing that's going to get us through what follows. Reverence for Christ is the similarity amongst the differences. And I just want us to see that before we move any close, any further. Couple more caveats. Uh, 
I've been married for four and a half years, okay? So some of you are like, I'm already checked out because experience is what gives you the right to say anything to me. Uh, that's fine. I actually think this, this, the scriptures, right? The, the author is the one that has authority, not the preacher, right? And so there's some gold in this text. Paul himself was a single man. What? He has no authority to write anything on marriage, right? But he does because it comes from a higher place. Two, I'm not going to talk about sex, not because I don't have the freedom to, um, but I, because I don't want to give myself that freedom. So if you've got little kids in here or you're my wife, don't worry, we're not going to go there. Uh, three, no matter how good your marriage is, it's broken, okay? Because of the sin curse, there's not a marriage in here that's perfect. And so there's something inside of just this reference for Christ that I think can speak to every single marriage in this room. And on the flip side of that, no matter how bad your marriage is, no matter how much that word broken already rings true for you, there is total hope inside the, the gospel for you. The cross is so much bigger than any of our problems, no matter how big they feel, right? And so there's a lot of, a lot of hope in this, this room. Finally, to the singles, if you're single with a desire to marry, just go ahead and raise your hand or exit to the back and we'll just do a mingle time. Um, <laughs> that would be really beneficial for you. Literally no one did it. Y'all just laughed, which is fine. You don't want it that bad. Whatever. <laughs> Lastly, if you're single with no plans to marry again, you're more like Paul than any of us in here, and he cared about marriage enough to write this letter to the church, and so you should care about the marriages sitting around you as well. And, uh, yeah, I think we'll all get something from just this idea of reference for Jesus. Um, okay, should we dive in? No, let's not. Better than a tango. Here's the image I want you to have of what a marriage is, okay? Even better than a tango. And here's, here's, I'll tell you why after I explain it. Marriage is like party boats on a lake, okay? We've, we all love party boats on a lake. There's like, obviously, there's so much that's beautiful about party boats on a lake, so much that's good about it. Party boats on a lake are also work. Like, if you don't pack the cooler, if you don't fill the boat with gas, like, it, it's actually a rougher day than you you know, you think it will be. I, I'm realizing this in adulthood now. It's like, man, my parents just did so much for me to be able to have fun on the lake. But here's why it's really like party boats on a lake. Marriage is obviously the idea of hitching our wagon to someone else's, right? Of going through life hand in hand. And those party boats on a lake, if you've seen any of them, right, they just tie up to each other. Great. We get that. But what's really important is what's under the surface, right? Because we've all been at in a cove where the boats are just drifting and why it's because no one anchored to what they actually needed to be anchored to which was the bottom not one another right this is this, this idea of the third unseen kind of thing that makes a marriage really gel and click one of you if not both of you has to be anchored to christ for a marriage to win for it to display and discover more of the gospel obviously it's better when both boats are tied to the bottom but if no one's tied to the, to the thing that actually is worth tying into it, you just end up in an explosion on the rocky shore, right? It's all fun at first, but then the waves and the winds of life come, and it's like, before you know it, there's just fire, okay? Party boats on a lake. Here's where we're going. Paul's going to speak to the wives, and he's going to speak to the husbands. And so there's going to be, what's the command for me as wives, and what might that look like today? What's the command for me as a husband, and what might that look like for me today? And then we'll close. Chapter 5, verse 22. Wives are first. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now also, 
As the church submits to Christ, so also wives are submit to their husbands in everything. I'm just going to read the whole passage. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Okay, to the wife this idea of submission and respect to the husband, this idea of love and sacrifice. Those are the commands, and I, I understand how unmodern, especially the terms to the wife, feel. But I want you to feel better about what, what the Bible is saying in this passage in the next couple minutes. This idea of biblical headship, of manhood and womanhood and us being different, it, it's rooted all the way in Genesis, but it's fulfilled even in Christ, right? He, he points to, to Jesus as our our anchor for everything. And I just want to explain what this idea of submission doesn't mean, okay? What it doesn't mean is that we're unequal in some way, right? This would contradict what Paul says in Galatians when he says, there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, you're all one in Christ. This would contradict Genesis, right? Both made in God's image. It has nothing to do with inequality. It's, it has nothing to do even with ability. Notice how there's nothing here that says like, well, because women are better at this sort of thing and men are better at this sort of thing, this is why. No, it has to do with the fact that God is a God of order, and there is something beautiful about, you know, Trace Jackson Davis just staying down on the low post, right? Three, it does not mean follow blindly in, into anything that would contradict anything else that Christ as the ultimate head would deem not good, right? And so this doesn't mean, you know, follow your husband into sin. No, it, this is for the everyday matters that, you know, are, are somewhat trivial or somewhat big, right? But they don't negate Christ as the ultimate head and what he would have for our lives. Four, this does not mean uh, mindless obedience to your husband's rule, but rather just grateful acceptance of his care and leadership, right? Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane before the cross. This is like the best picture of like when submission is difficult and yet Jesus embodies it perfectly, right? He's about to be betrayed and go to the cross, and he says, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Well, I mean, crazy, right? If he just decides in that moment to put his foot down and not do what the Father and him have been planning from the beginning of time, literally none of us are sitting in this room. Jesus just understands this idea and this beautiful idea of submission to a father who is ultimate in authority and can be trusted fully. Right? Even to the point of doing something tough. Fifth, this doesn't mean don't speak your mind or initiate things that God brings to your mind as women in the, inside the home or even question decisions. I mean, thank God Sydney questions like a ton of my decisions or we would be in a really bad spot. Right? Like she, I, she is my helper and tool to even like make decisions and lead when it's required. Right? And so if she didn't ever speak her mind to me, I'm serious. We would have done really stupid stuff with money, with where we move, with what we give our time to. There's ways that she is so much more brilliant and able than me in, in so many areas. 
right? And so that this isn't negating that. This doesn't mean wives are supposed to cook and clean while husbands make the money. It doesn't say that anywhere in here, right? There are cultural things over time that have changed and been more normal or less normal in culture, but it could literally mean the exact opposite of that for your family and you still be obedient to this text, right? So here's what it does mean. If I was to summarize what submission means from other people more, uh, more smart than me, a humble recognition of the divine order of marriage. Like a humble recognition that there is a complementary dynamic to this relationship and there is something beautiful about submission. Okay, and I just want you to even understand too, we would have no qualms with this idea had there not been hundreds of thousands of abuse of power and authority in the history of the world. Right, like none of us, if we still lived in the Garden of Eden, would have like any problem with this word, but it's because not of an abuse of submission in the past, but an abuse of power and authority on so many accounts that it's like, I don't know if I can actually do this. And you'd be correct if you're submitting to someone that is going to wield that power incorrectly or not use their power to leverage, you know, your life and lift you up but tear you down. I mean, again, that's happened time and time again. It may have even happened to you, and that's why this is really, oh, I'm sorry. You know, seriously, Christ has a lot to comfort you in that reality, but he doesn't mince his words here and come up with something different for what marriage in an ideal sense is, right? Culturally, this is, is shocking to us, but I assure you it was more shocking in the opposite way when Paul was writing these words. What do I mean? Culturally, the, the Jews had a, a low view of, of women. So the Jews, low view of women. Daily morning prayer, they would give thanks for not making them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Every day, Jews would pray, thank you, God, for not making me these things. A woman had no, no legal rights in Judaism. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed, and the position was worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. Like, there was no friendship. The Greek expected his wife to raise the kids and, and run the household while he found his pleasure and companionship totally outside the home. In Greece, home and family life were near extinct and fidelity was completely non-existent and in Rome, it was still worse. The degeneracy was tragic. It was not too much to say that the entire atmosphere was adulterous and women were treated horribly. That's how one commentator puts what this, this passage is entering into as the backdrop of what society looks like, right? This, this passage shines as a light to women. Wow. You, you would actually, like, see women not as, as different and less than, but equals, and even have words to how my responsibility now as a person made in God's image in Christ is supposed to live inside the home that would be honoring and give me dignity. That, that was actually crazy in the first century, right? And here's what I, I just want to leave you with, with this for. I just give some practical application. Jesus Christ does not lose his dignity by willfully submitting to the Father in this idea of submission, right? Instead, he demonstrates his dignity. I love how one, one guy put it. When a person is voluntarily meek or helpful or places themselves at another's service, they are displaying much greater dignity than someone who cannot stand to be a helper or partner to anyone but themselves. Do you see that? There's power in even being able to offer your services willingly and helpful. That is what submission should look like. The opposite of that is, no, I will never 
do anything, right? I serve me and me alone. That, that's anti-gospel. That's anti-marriage. So wives, if, if that's the command, what might this look like today? What might it look like to be so anchored to Christ that I can fulfill this command in my marriage? I think three things. Support, respect, and follow. Support. Help your husband be the husband, father, and man God wants him to be however you can. You are his greatest helper in life, and that is not going to change. Look at Christ and, and just come alongside. Help him. He needs your help. Respect. This is huge. Your, your voice, even just your words, your voice is louder than you think and more powerful than you know, I promise. When it feels like, man, it doesn't matter what I say at home, I can be the most, you know, the least filtered. That may be true, but there's also still power in those words, right? You can absolutely destroy or embolden your husband with words alone. He may get built up and torn down all day long at work or wherever, but one, the one voice that can really break him or make him is yours. So respect him unconditionally. Right? The, the crazy thing about both of these commands for the husband and the wife, it has, has nothing to do with how they're treating you. When I am the least respectable is when I need Sydney's respect the most. When she's the least lovable is when she needs my love the most. That is beautiful. And so res respect your husband. Put courage into him. Go beyond respect. Encourage him, right? Look to Christ and then respect your husband. And finally, follow. What, what does this look like? Right? When, what I think it looks like is, is when he takes an initiative, and that may be super rare in your home or that may be all the time, right? But when he takes initiative... Do your best to just lean in and, and follow and support that, you know? Like, sometimes for guys, it takes a lot to even go there, or sometimes they're the domineering type. It, again, it doesn't matter in the text. What matters is this. What is my just joyful willingness to follow his lead when he says, hey, I think we should do this. What do you think? Again, it doesn't mean you can't <laughs> dialogue and push back. But it's your first gut impulse to just put your foot down and undermine his, his role. Or is it say... Yeah, I, I, I joyfully follow this guy wherever, right? That's, that's crazy. Uh, especially, again, when, it, when it's trivial, there, there's nothing more demoralizing than hearing absolutely not, and I don't want to hear another peep about it, okay? <laughs> like, really, you, you can imagine the situation. Uh, Sydney's honestly awesome about this. And again, we'll get to the, the men in a second and what initiation looks like, or initiative, but... Anytime I suggest anything, especially if it's like a spiritual leadership thing, which I'm telling you, there's like a weird spiritual warfare that goes on in households where it's like, it's hard to lead spiritually. But anytime I've ever even like hinted, like the most passive aggressive, like we should pray more. She's like, absolutely, let's do it. That's a gift. That, and that is just an example of poor leadership and awesome followership on her part, right? Do that for your husband's. It will make leading more of a delight, and they'll be better at it. A good example is, is my vocation, not Sydney's, brought us to Indiana. Okay, surprise. It's been a wonderful decision for both of us. However, had she just put her foot down and said, no, I want to stay closer to family, that's the end of the discussion, I don't have the right inside of this passage to be like, too bad, follow my leadership. And that's a terrible thing. Like, that would have been stupid. We had moved here. She'd been disgruntled, unhappy. That's just not the command, right? But the command for her is like, yeah, let's, let's let his vocation drive this if it makes sense. 
And God has so blessed that decision to let my vocation and the calling that I feel like God put on not just my life, but her life, move us to Bloomington, Indiana, for her to just get a teaching job here and be a vital member of the school district. It would have caused a great deal of pain for her to just say no to that, for me to be like, I don't know then what to do with my calling or vocation, right? All right, husbands. What's the command, right? Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and love your wives as yourself. I love how for the guys he gets like ideal and practical, right? Like, hey, if, just in case you miss what I'm saying, like just like you love you, love them like that. This is the golden rule. What this doesn't mean for the husbands, uh, notice what it doesn't say. Like, again, it doesn't say, hey, in view of what I just said to the ladies, you should rule and lead well. No, it says you should love and sacrifice. Love as Christ, who is the model and ideal, and love as your own body, the practical. Use your power to care, not crush. To serve, not oppress. What does this look like today? Uh, real quick note, both of these things are like the exact opposite of what we see happen in the curse in Genesis 3. You see, after the fall, like Eve's desire is to rule her husband, and Adam's desire is to use his power coercively. So Paul's given us language here that's just the exact reversal of the sin curse. Say, hey, actually flourishing would look like this. Husbands, this says nothing about forcing to submission. I can't say that enough with this, this text. I don't care if she never follows your lead and only disrespects you. Too bad. Love and sacrifice and serve, okay? This has everything to do with taking initiative more than you probably are currently, right? As much as we have examples of abuse of power, we also have examples of just total passivity amongst men, right? Especially in spiritual things. John Piper... Uh, well, sorry, let me categorize these, these three things for the men. Lead, sacrifice, care. John Piper puts the lead part so simply. Husbands are those that use the word let's more than anyone else. Let's go on a walk. Let's read the Bible. Let's put the kids to bed. Let's look at the budget. Let's repaint that wall that I know you wanted repainted this weekend. Let's go on a date. Kevin DeYoung says, an eagerness to make plans, take risks, and be fully engaged in the marriage relationship, especially spiritually. That's the biblical call to husbands leading. He also says Christian husbands can be so aggressive and assertive when it comes to making money, tackling problems at work, or even pursuing their hobbies. But when it comes to loving leadership in the home, too often they're absolute doormats. Ouch. I, that, that resonates pretty close. <clears throat> Big hobby guy. Okay, <clears throat> I'm not even going to address like washing of water with the word language in the text, or actually I am right now. So here you go. Washing of water with the word. I Really practically, Sydney and I have started just like reading a chapter of the Bible every day. Even if we don't, we don't talk about it after, we don't pray after, we just like, let's just let the words of God be more central to our marriage than less, right? And so literally around dinner or before bed, we just try to read the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, and then close up shop, come back tomorrow. But wash, wash your wife with the words of the gospel. Like, remind her of what's true. If you see her the way Christ sees her, tell her, right? And I don't know, take showers would be the water part of that, I guess. I don't know, honey, let's, you know, we should shower more. I don't know. <laughs> take initiative. 
Look at Christ who woos and wins and invites his bride. Every single time, it is always the church's fault, and yet Christ takes the first steps towards reconciliation. Every time. He is never in the wrong. The church never pursues him. Apologize first. Look to Christ. Sacrifice. Okay, number two. Another one Christ embodies, another gut punch. It might mean come home earlier. Help take care of the kids more. Do the dishes. Clean up your beard hair after you trim it. That one is, I do not embody Christ well there. <laughs> Fix something around the house, you know? Like, I don't care if you have to watch a 10-minute YouTube to figure it out. Just, she's just asking you to watch YouTube. That's not the big deal. Or it might be bigger stuff. Forfeit climbing that corporate ladder to be a decent, present husband. Give up hopes and dreams if your wife falls ill or is injured. Like, what do you do if that happens to you and Christ isn't your anchor? You just say, well, this isn't what I planned for marriage. Give up the best neighborhood and that big house for your wife to stay home with the kids. That's what, you know, she really wants to do. Like, you can do that. Look to Christ. This is what one old dead guy with a name that I couldn't pronounce says. He said, yes, even if it shall be necessary to give your very life for her, and to be cut into pieces 10,000 times, yes, and to endure and undergo immense suffering, refuse it not. Though you may undergo all this, yet you will not, no, not even then, have done anything like Christ. <sighs> Ouch. Third, care. Care. Don't you feed and clothe and protect and care for yourself, right? This is the idea. Do the same for her. Use your power to empower her. Speak kindly. For every one critique, why don't you give 10 encouragements? A buddy of mine does that. I think it's amazing. When's the last time you read a marriage book because you care? Strive to do things that align with her love languages, not just yours. Treat her like a woman, not in a demeaning way, but, but like a queen, right? Cultivate her growth as a follower of Christ. Care about how much she looks like Jesus. Look to Christ who cares for you. Okay, lastly, for the single people, because I'm a college pastor and I can't not. You can absolutely be preparing for marriage before you're married, okay? Real, real briefly, how? Submit to the Lordship of Christ, anchor yourself to Christ, and lay down your life in love for people that will never be your spouse. What does sacrifice and love and submission look like in your life as a single person? It's not a huge stretch to say that Christian unity starts inside the home. So if you're a college student or single in here, whether you're married or not, what does that mean? The closest thing you have to a hubby or wife right now is probably your roommate. How are you humbly loving and serving them? That is probably the absolute best tell us what it's going to be like being married to you. So boyfriends and girlfriends, if you want to know what sort of Christian they are, ask their roommates. Just if you want to know what side of man critter is, ask Allison. If you don't see marriage as a commitment to putting the other person ahead of yourself day in and day out, don't marry. But most importantly, if you do decide to marry, make sure you marry someone who is anchored in Christ. Remember the boats? Don't be deceived by the nice-looking yacht. For sure not the nice-looking bikini, okay? If there's not an anchor underneath that boat, you might as well marry a pile of ashes on the rocks. I would rather you, I mean, man, it's just so, what's the Bible say? Beauty is vain, you know, and charm is deceitful. 
would rather you marry the, the person that's just covered head to toe in clothing and sitting on a canoe, but man, they're anchored. They're not going anywhere. I promise you, you will be happier. I promise. Marry someone who's got something underneath the surface, not just on the surface, and let that thing under the surface be Jesus Christ. Okay, let's land the plane. Like, what's our motivation to actually do this? I've tried to just repeat it and repeat it, but if, if marriage is, is central to the, this idea of the gospel, right? He says it in the text. I'm not talking even about your marriages. This mystery is way more profound than that. What I'm talking about is Christ in the church. Marriage has always been this thing that's supposed to picture and be uh, looked at as this, this beautiful display of Christ and his church. And really, in a practical way, like when my life is unlovable, how do I love her? Like when I am just angry and she's given me every right to be ticked, like what is my motivation to just love and serve? If I don't have Christ, I literally don't know what the answer to that is. Look back at our vows that I made however many years ago and just say, I committed to this. No, it is Jesus in those moments that is so necessary for me to know what love looks like. And the same is true for her. When my husband is unres- unrespectable, how do I respect him? It's because the call is to look to Jesus. In reverence to him, these commands flow out. The gospel tells us and shows us so perfectly Christ died for the unlovable and the unrespectable. Every single one of us. The most stark pictures of what sin is like in the Old Testament to me are the ones that picture adultery, right? Just go read Ezekiel. Go read Hosea. Every single one of us has been so unfaithful to Christ. And we've been so unfaithful in so many ways inside of our marriages. The only thing that brings us back is the, the cross. It's been the plan from the beginning of time for marriages to be this beautiful thing. Right? The cross is the, is the answer. Like Jesus is the, the solution for both the husband and the wife to look at him and then to do as we're commanded. And he promises it will be this more beautiful thing than if we go our own way, do our own thing. Look for the other to support my needs. We, unlike anyone else, have the ability to forgive when the other is not treating us as they should. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We have the ability to love because we've been loved. There must be a third party in your marriage. Christian marriage is becoming more countercultural for sure, but that in that it's, it's got more potential to be this beautiful thing in, inside a culture, doesn't it? In culture, marriage is about focusing on what you can expect to receive from the other. There's nothing in this text about what you can expect to receive from your husband or wife. It's all about what, what the gospel calls you to give. And when both parties do that, it is, it is flourishing. Only in Christian marriage can I really give myself to the other because of what we've already been given in Christ. Our marriages to one another, no matter how good or bad they are, are are temporary, right? But our marriage to Christ goes beyond the grave. It is more sure, more solid. Jesus says something to all his would-be followers. He says, whoever's willing to give up their life for my sake will discover what life's really about, right? I think the marriage version of that verse is, Whoever's willing to give up their life for their partner will discover what God had intended for marriage. Right? The gospel helps me discover what marriage is even about. And not only that, it helps me display what the gospel's about. 
right? And discovering flourishing by being willing to just give up myself for my wife. It forces me into my anchor, that is Christ. And in forcing me deeper into Christ and forcing us deeper into Christ, it displays to the next generation what marriage is about and to the watching world what, what Christ is about. If people want to know what sort of church embassy is, I really think a good tell would be to look at our marriages, and I pray that this text drives some good conversation uh, at home this week. I, I pray that there's husbands and wives in this church that give people a picture of marriage like I was given when I was a college student at Iowa State University. I really do. People like that set me up for marriage so much better than I deserve to be set up for marriage, but I would have literally no idea if not for people embodying passages like this one and just loving each other. So I hope that Sydney has marriage can be that, but I hope that there's just a ton of marriages like that in this room because when things aren't good at home, there's very little that's gonna be done outside the home, right? But when things are good inside the home, man, the gospel can just explode in a place like Bloomington. And so let's not let marriage be this hurdle, but this tool that God intends it to be for us to just have stability and love and display the gospel to the people around us. Let me pray. God, I know there's a, a, just an array of experiences in this room when it comes to something like marriage. Uh, God, I, I, yeah, I confess just the, the brokenness in my own marriage that you're still redeeming. And God, I just thank you for the struggle that the gospel invites us into as this beautiful thing where we can grow or we can have hope where we can discover more uh, of what, what the gospel actually means. God, we've been so unfaithful, and yet you pursued us. You took that initiative as the head, as the, the best example of what manhood could ever be. You chased us down in our mess, and you loved us enough to die for us. And God, in the same way, you, you, you perfectly uh, yeah, embody what submission looks like to do the Father's will no matter what it would cost you. And God, without that, we would not have hope for our own marriages, for our own lives. And God, we long to just be united to, to you someday fully. And so until that day, would you help us remember what our anchor is? Would you help us look to you, whether single or married? We love you. We thank you for Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about us or to get connected, please visit embassybtown.org.